Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with you as always. Uh, if you have a second, please remember to hit that subscribe button uh, and to leave us a review. Also, send us in a DM on Twitter. Uh, I'm at RD Hassler, Will's at Stockdale Will. We'd love to uh, address any questions or thoughts that you may have had uh, listening to any previous episodes or this episode once you're done listening to it. And so, yeah, we just love uh, to hear from you. So, Today's going to be a fun episode. It's one that I think Will and I have been kind of chewing on recently, especially since this past week was the 19th anniversary of September 11th. Obviously a very um, sober and important day uh, in American history that many were reflecting on uh, in different newspapers and, and um, online uh, with different opinions or sort of detailing the way our country has changed since that fateful day. Will, you even wrote down some thoughts and sent them to me just to kind of hear my thoughts on some stuff. And so um, I think first and foremost, you know, uh, it's important to have that context because I think everybody remembers that day differently and, be, and their memories of that day kind of shape how it lives on uh, in their consciousness. So, I mean, I don't know if I've ever asked you, so what was, what was your experience on September? 11th. Yeah, there are those days that um, stick in our heads vividly and will probably forever be vivid. Maybe some details will fall out, but this one seems pretty clear. And I remember my Latin teacher in high school saying that for him, his day that he remembers vividly was when JFK was assassinated. And so he remembers where he was sitting in his classroom as a student and his teacher announcing and all of that. So I, uh, I had the joy of being homeschooled until high school. So I was actually at home when uh, 9-11 struck. I remember I was, um, I was in my parents' living room and a friend, Casey Vermillion, who lived down the street called and he said, did you hear about the Twin Towers? And I, you know, honestly, I didn't even know what they were. I had hmm. I had no idea what they were called. I'm sure I'd seen them in a movie. I mean, I'd seen Home Alone 2. And so I'd probably, you know, seen them in a movie, but that's about it. And he said, they've been attacked. And so I went and turned on the news and um, started watching. It was interesting. The day before, actually, Casey Vermillion, his younger brother Chase and me were playing on this playground park in Benbrook, which is a neighboring town and we actually were to talk because like as little boys do talking about world war ii and then what would world war three be like so obviously in the back of my head as a little 13 almost 13 year old there are these questions of what is what is it going to be war what's this going to look like eventually it was of course i also remember being very scared for my older sister who uh so i was homeschooled at the time my younger sister anna and my younger brother alex were all homeschooled together and my oldest Emily though was at a charter school in Fort Worth because she loved singing and wanted to do singing and theater and so she went to a charter school that allowed her to do that and I just remember being concerned like what if something hits her in Fort Worth I think she was on a field trip actually to Dallas and so I was like what if something happens there and then I remember at the end of the day walking outside and seeing my dad uh, on the steps that lead to the driveway just laying on the front porch or front steps uh, on his back, looking up at the stars, just kind of taking in and processing the whole day and what it meant. And then just kind of the things that flowed out from there. 
those are my big memories. I think we went to my grandparents' house also that day. Uh, my my mom's mom and dad live in Fort Worth, which is just like 20 minutes from my my parents' house, and went there and spent some time with them, speculating what what it all meant. And then obviously the famous George W. Bush megaphone speech that he made, bullhorn speech, I think is what it's called. Yeah, but I can hear you. I, that that one. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's one of those days that I like to hear what people's memories of of it were. I think it also depends on where you were. I mean, I I, I also was in Dallas Fort Worth. I was in grade school and I was already at school uh when the plane hit the the World Trade Center. I mean, I was too young to really understand what was going on and they they weren't giving us any information. Um we were just they clearly we were too young to process that. And so I do remember that very early on uh, just every kid in class, really every kid in the school was getting pulled out. And so as the day went on, like by lunchtime, there was barely any students still left at the school. Uh, I was still there. And basically what they did is they just, they congregated all of the, the kids into one classroom, basically let us have a free day to read and, and do whatever, play on the computer and stuff while one teacher would kind of be in there watching us. And then every 30 minutes, some teacher would relieve her and they'd all go back to the teacher's lounge and, and and watch what was going on. I never got pulled out. So I spent the whole day at school, rode, a, rode an empty school bus home, uh, came back. What, I remember what was weird was that my dad was home. He worked in downtown Dallas and he was home at 3.30 or whatever it was. Um, upstairs, he was working, but he had the, the TV on and was just sort of watching the news. And I, I, that, I remember that being really weird. I remember both my parents were usually very happy to see me when I got home and, and excited. And then there, it was just very quiet and there wasn't a lot of talking. I found out that my dad was actually evacuated that morning uh, from his office because they were, he worked in the tallest building in downtown Dallas. And so they were worried that that might be a target. And so um, he actually evacuated that day. So everyone has sort of their different day of experiences. I think most people though, uh, remember in the preceding months after the event, sort of a swell of, of patriotism. Uh, there was just a lot of American flags everywhere. It was, I remember baseball postponed for the season and then they came back and played and almost everyone was wearing, you know, FDNY hats. And there was just sort of this, this swell of, American patriotism. Um, and I think one of the things that people were commenting on now, 19 years removed, that you know, our nation's going through another crisis, albeit a very different kind of crisis. Uh, but it's interesting that we don't see that same sort of rallying around the flag, finding our common unity in citizenship. And I guess kind of the question I wanted to pose to kind of get us going is, is why is that? Why don't we have that same response today. What would we be responding to? So I think you could say, you know, we're, we're dealing with a couple different crises on, on the American front. So we're dealing with COVID and a national pandemic that has shut down most of the country. Um, and then you're also dealing with the uh, civil unrest going on in major cities. Is it because we perceive them as mostly domestic threats? Uh, whereas 9/11 was more of a an outside threat. I mean, what it, what are the what are the contributing factors? I think it's important to kind of establish those, and then we can kind of move on from there. 
Gosh, yeah, that's that's such a good question. What all has changed? In one sense, there has been a greater awareness of the uh, racial sins in America's past since 2001. I think there's greater understanding of what things were like. I think there's greater understanding of uh, even things as long ago as the Jim Crow South and what that was actually like for people. I think that's also paired with a sort of mission failure in Iraq. And I think part of what galvanized America after 9-11 was this sense that attack on one is an attack on all. Um, that we, um, it may also be interesting. I don't remember saying anyone saying we were all New Yorkers today. You know, it was like, we, we sympathized with New York, but we were all Americans and understood that this was an attack on America versus more recent attacks. Like we are all Charlie Hebdo, you know, um, which I'm like, actually, that's, that's really interesting. That, that kind of fractured unification in a way where we, we abandon one identity and take on another for a temporary, which isn't sustainable for a long term. But uh, I think this galvanizing that we were attacked and then there was an outward focus on an enemy that could kind of pull us together as a country and get us focused on um, something that we saw as a great evil um, in the world, that terrorism was a great evil. I mean, the name terror itself is something that does not lead to human life and flourishing and the hope that that could be weeded out combined with this idea of spreading uh, democracy and American flavor of democracy around the world, which looked, turned out to be so much more difficult than we were expecting. I think also we were really moved and inspired by the stories that came out that day. Um, the man with the red bandana, who I'm getting chills thinking about that. The firefighters and the policemen who kept going back. Um, the look on W's face when he was in the school reading and uh, was told what happened and just kind of the, uh, I don't know what word you would use to describe it, but it was um, not necessarily shock, but just, uh, this weight seemed to sink on him of what things are going. And it's interesting. I was hearing someone say today uh, that the conservatives have to do a better job reclaiming education. It was like, well, it's interesting to think that that was <laughs> what W was elected on was, was reforming education. And uh, that got sidelined terribly by 9-11. There's, there's an interesting CNN docuseries about the 2000s. And they specifically talk about, they have a whole episode dedicated to 9-11 and one of the points that they draw out in the first like five minutes of the episode is that like George W. Bush was elected to be this really domestically focused president. And then that moment in the school, I think it's they're, they're interviewing the guy who actually delivered the news to him. And he said, like, you could just tell on his face, like the weight of being like everything I was planning to do is now different. I now live in a post 9-11 world, which is much different than it was when I woke up today. I mean, we, we look at what, we, what, what I considered as a terrorist before that was an American militia group. Timothy McVeigh. It was, it was, yeah, it was not. Terrorism did not look like what it looked like post 9-11. I thought of people taking over a school. I thought of a, more, a domestic form of it, not international coming in. And um, th that a, a huge shift in that, in that way of a, even thinking of terrorism. I will point out that that, when I tell people that same thing who are not from Texas or even from that area, they don't, they don't quite connect it because they remember like there was an initial bombing attempt at the world trade center. I think back in 90, 
two or three that was uh, foreign based. But when people grow up in Texas and you think of sort of like the big terrorist events, you think of the Oklahoma City bombing by Timothy McVeigh, and then you think of Waco, even though that's kind of a different kind of thing. But that's a very Texas mindset to have. I, it is just a weird aside I, I point out that yeah, that, that thing is very particular to that part of the country. And I think for older people as well, by older, I mean people who are in their 20s, probably and above, you have uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, and you have the, I mean, my goodness, we were only... 13 years removed from the fall of the Berlin Wall. So this idea of Pax Americana, this idea of the spread of liberal democracy, of global capitalism, this, the 80s dominance of Greece, so many things that seem to lead us to believe that the world can only be a good place. Um, it will only get better, just came crashing down and changed immediately. And that's a, that's a very real whiplash. And again, I think that most Americans had to face the fact that a lot of the world hates America. Now that can be for any number of reasons. You can take the conservative argument that says there's oppression and fascism and communism that hates American freedom. And then you can say, no, it's American military might that has intervened and capitalism that has destroyed local economies around the world and has exploited resources. That's reason. Either way, that those two narratives rose and they became more forefront of our consciousness and people had to deal with that. And I think when you look at those narratives floating up of why do people hate us and this failure in Iraq, a 2008 global crisis, uh, a rise of understanding of the situation for many minorities in America, uh, that becoming more emphasized, all this stirred into a potent cocktail to, I think, bring us to where we are today without an accompaniment of that, um, the preciousness of that moment after 9-11 where people were unified and were proud of their country and did rally around something that was truly good. It didn't seem to last, but it was definitely there for a time. And that has fallen away. I mean, just look at the way we view police officers now from then. Yeah. I mean, so this kind of leads to an interesting question of American exceptionalism. And I want to tie it back to our purpose as a podcast to really speak about um, the church and, and our role as Christians engaging with these things. And so, I, I mean, I remember post 9-11, like there were definitely, that was definitely felt within the walls of the church. Like I remember specifically, I remember a sermon after 9-11 um, that was specifically aimed at these kind of things, really dealing with you know the e- you know the problem of evil um, as manifested in something like a terrorist attack. I remember Ligonier, I think, put out a little booklet specifically about it, uh, which I think R.C. Sproul. It was kind of a, an adapted sermon by R.C. Sproul that he had given about it. It's it's interesting to me that that moment was really made felt within the church as a moment that we really needed to embrace maybe our American citizenship and be part of that moment. And it's, it's interesting to me that, and I'm not speaking for one specific tradition here. I, I generally speaking the the American church from its more progressive elements to its more conservative elements, that sentiment has sort of seeped away. We don't really want to talk about that anymore. You tend to hear more expressions like 
you know, re-emphasizing our heavenly citizenship over our American citizenship, even some, in some cases denying our American citizenship. That's an interesting trend that I'm trying to track and figure out, well, what's, what's happened since then? Um, is it a over-eagerness to distance itself from sort of like any rhetorical uh, echoes of Christian nationalism? Is it something else? That's kind of one thing I'm trying to figure out as well. Yeah, that that's a really good question. What are the driving motivators for this? And I think what are people afraid of and what do people hope for in that kind of distancing? I remember uh, in class one time in seminary, one my favorite professor, um, he tells a story that he um, was teaching at Westminster Theological Seminary at this time. And one of the students asked him, hey, are you ever going to become an American citizen? And he says, I don't think so. And they were like, well, why? And he said, because I'm a Scot. <laughs> and because he, sure, he was living in America. He had pastored in South Carolina. He um, loved and appreciated things about this country. But in his heart, he was a Scot. And he loved Scotland. And he wanted the best for Scotland. And that was going to be his home. And I admire that. I'm like, that's right. That's not that's not wrong. That, that, that can certainly devolve into an idolatrous, toxic point where there is the need to command and domineer, uh, maybe that anyone who's not like you is inferior, but to appreciate and love where one is from is, a, is an admirable quality. And um, I think in the church, there are you know, the, the people who say we must renounce our American citizenship, we're not citizens of America, we're citizens of heaven, which I don't know if that's not commanded. Um, Jesus doesn't tell the soldier to no longer be a soldier. He says be a good soldier. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they would tell the Kenyan or the Chinese or the Frenchman to stop being French or to be ashamed of where they're from. And that difference, I think, is needed to be addressed and reconciled. And I think it points to a deeper thing, which is probably where we're going to go eventually, at least, is how do we steward that well? It is by God's sovereign hand that someone is born in Mexico or Venezuela or America or Canada, heaven forbid. I don't know. <laughs> uh, th but there's a reason for that. And there's certain goods there, certain privileges, certain, certain problems that God calls on Christians to address and deal with. And they are not helped by living in total shame and uh, neglect of that. Because how do you expect for things to get better if there is only this hatred, vitriol, and shame? Right. There is a connection between the ability to reform something and your love of that thing. Right. So this is a point that protestants make of the reformers is that you know they reformed the church because they loved it they loved the faith and they wanted to see it um return to its traditions and what what made it you know what it was and so i think we can we can adopt a similar position um as citizens of both the kingdom of god and called into us and into a particular american citizenship. There's such a, a desire to talk about vocations. And we talk about our vocations as husbands and as sons and as fathers and as plumbers and doctors. We've, we very rarely ever talk about 
like our vocation as an American citizen as you know, what are we, what are we called to do in our role as, as that? And um, I think it's important to, to keep that in mind and that you can love certain aspects of our, our nation and, and because of that love seek to reform them. I think another important point that you brought out with sort of talking about your professor from, from Scotland, like it's not this sort of detached love of of a nation it's not this i love scotland because of their colors or their their football team or it i love scotland because it's my home and we need to recognize that there is a natural attachment to like the place that we're from the place that we make home and it doesn't have to be a first love you know it, it shouldn't be a first love but it can be a love and i think one thing that, and, and you're, you're sort of the theological expert on this. So this is something I've been bouncing around in my head and I want you to tell me if I'm right or if I'm spouting heresy. But throughout the Old Testament, while the Israelites are in exile, <laughs> Will just brought up the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's opening it and saying, oh, let's see how Robert does. Um, in the Old Testament, you know, the Israelites, when they're in exile, there is this longing to return back to Jerusalem, back to their home. And throughout that process, the Old Testament of, of desiring to be back home and as, as the years of exile go on, as we enter you know, the, the period before Jesus's uh, incarnation and, and ministry, you know, that, that idea had been morphed into sort of turning the Messiah into this political figure and Jesus subverting those assumptions um, and not being the crusader that was going to kick out the Romans. And in fact, saying that my kingdom is, is, uh, transcends this earth and it, it extends throughout this, this place. And at the same time, we look towards procession entering into the new Jerusalem, right? There, there is this, I, I kind of, the way I kind of, maybe I'm thinking about it in my head and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's that God does still recognize that longing for home and, and promise and does promise it and is going to do that thing. And I think we kind of, especially in like an American context, we sort of dismiss that and we go, well, we're all going to heaven. And it's a sort of detached ethereal place that's not connected to anything that we're really familiar with. And the, the pictures in Revelation, as I think about the procession into the new, into the new city and there's all the, you know, all the different churches from all across the world. And there's this real celebration of their particular homes, their, their places where they're from, the, the things that they produced in those places that can now be brought forth uh, and presented to the king. Is, am, I, am I way off base here or is that, is that unfounded? What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? As much as I would love for Texas to be eternity. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I can speak to that. I do think that we are made for home and for a place. There's a reason Jesus says that I go to prepare a place for you. Um, and it's a, a place with many rooms. It is a, it is a place for the heart to be at rest. And at, at the very least, the longings we have for home here in like a literal sense, like I would like to go see my parents or if you have a home, wherever you are, I would like to go back there if you're on vacation. Um, those are like dim longings of that ultimate longing for the heart. And 
there's there's probably some correlation here before the, between the purity and the proper longing for our home in an earthly sense and um, its right placing and its and our ultimate longing for a heavenly home. When you were talking, it reminded me of the C.S. Lewis quote. It says there are um, there are many things worth dying for, but there are very few things worth living for. And um, our earthly home is not something worth living for. I don't think. Um, that that places it in, a, in an improper, improper order, improper placement, puts it in a primary place instead of a secondary one. Uh, but there is something good in a longing to be home. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's I mean it's 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 all it's a constant balance, right? We've got to mindful and keep our eyes set on where we're going, and at the same time, we need to be appreciative and thankful for the the blessings that. God has given us in our homes and, and where we're from. Yeah. And I, you mentioned this earlier, say in order to change a thing, you must first love that thing for it, in order to change a thing for the better. We must first love that thing. And there, there have been two men that I think exemplify that really well for me. I, I, there are plenty of other examples. I honestly, I was just thinking Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, the Stowe family is really a, a great example of that. Uh, um, Clara Barton and her sacrifice and uh, on the battlefield for nursing. Uh, but two people that I think are really helpful, Fyodor Dostoevsky. I love Dostoevsky and I love him because he loves Russia. He is deeply Russian. He loved walking around St. Petersburg. Uh, he was put in prison and then almost executed and then his sentence was commuted. And he wrote Demons and he wrote the book Demons as kind of a warning for like the, the wickedness that's out there in the human heart ultimately, but also of, of this kind of revolutionary impulse. And then I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as well. And Bonhoeffer was thoroughly German. I mean, he loved German. In fact, um, when he was in America, he was, he wondered, you know, could I, can he ever express himself as fully in another language as he could in German? He missed even the German language and the, the familiarity he knew with it and his ability to, to speak it well. And those two men, it, in some ways, they warned of opposites. You have communism with Dostoevsky and fascism with Bonhoeffer, and, but they both longed to change and better their country, but out of a deep love for it and a desire for it to be better. And I think that's what drove them. And that's what made their work so lasting. I mean, Dostoevsky's work is basically prophetic. Like Mm. Demons is basically a prophetic political novel of what was going to happen in Russia. And Bonhoeffer's work in his underground seminary and books like Life Together and Cost of Discipleship, like those are long lasting, timely books that are written for his church around him. Yeah, that point about taming in some ways the revolutionary spirit, the the desire not to to burn everything down and, and start anew is really important. I think it's something that maybe gets missed in our own American context. We like we like to celebrate um, the Revolutionary War and the colonies' separation from Britain, and you'll hear oftentimes that you know the American experiment was this absolutely brand new thing. And uh, I think that if you were to pull the founders, that description would match the French Revolution mo- much more than their own, and they would vehemently reject the French Revolution. Um, and you can see what that revolutionary spirit produces, right? You know, you quickly go from these 
uh, beautiful, uh, rational proofs to the guillotine really quickly. Whereas in America, there was much more a sense of preserving the English tradition. Uh, they were really seeing themselves as moving the ball forward on what had come before them uh, and to better protect the, the, the rights of Englishmen um, better than the, than the king was doing at the time. And so I think that there's something in history uh, in all those cases that Christians can glean as we appro- approach our own um, roles, uh, as we engage with culture and, and politics and society, and really resisting that that revolutionary fervor. I think what we have on both sides is a, a burn it all down and, and everything's fine here. <laughs> um, when neither of those are, are right or helpful. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good in America's story. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the books being published right now, even now, gosh, out of Christian publishing houses are shameful uh, against this country. They, they shame it. Uh, our bad history, our incredibly partial history, but extrapolate that partiality to cover all of it. And that there's only one way to properly read history there's a lens that is put on for everything. And that's just not good scholarship. I think that's very irresponsible. And then on the other side, you have the America can do no wrong. Yeah. Anything we touch turns to gold. And it's like, well, that's clearly false. <laughs> yes. That is just, that's not, a good point. That's just not true. And man, to love a place is to be able to speak truthfully about it and lovingly. I know my dearest friends love me the most because they can speak most clearly into my life about the good and the bad and the shortcomings and the strengths. And I'll listen to them because of it, but they're not always critical and they're not always positive. Will's a mixed bag. (laughs) And and I appreciate that. And I think, and, and the difficult part is, so if we can get from like either the extremes from the everything's perfect and, or everything's rotten, to hey, this is a this is a mixed bag place, but with a lot of good and probably more good than bad in this place. To taking the next step forward and seeking to better, and I think a lot of it happens in in small ways. Uh, we can get to this at another time, but I think the temptation can be like, hey, if it's a mixed bag, we'll just throw my hands up, then because uh, what do I do? But the the challenge is going to be then to taking the next step forward to making things even better than they are now in, in a, in a civil political sense and gosh, civility, let's, let's support that a little more. No, I, I think that's, that's really wise. It's going to require a lot of uh, prudence, which is a virtue we don't talk enough about and something we should probably be spending more, more of our time studying. You know, we're approaching this election cycle and these kind of questions are at, at the top of everyone's mind. And I think it's been really helpful for me to really consider what is my relation to these things? Am I valuing this thing too much or too little? Uh, am I being ungrateful? I, I think after our last episode, I, I texted you and I was like, ah, I don't know. I kind of sound defeatist. Um, I kind of sound like a pessimist about things. And that may or may not be the case. But I, I think the, the point remains is that we don't want to be reactionary. We want to be principled. And so it's a matter of, of figuring out what those principles are um, and moving forward from there. So 
Um, well, this has been great again. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Will and Rob show. Uh, as always, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Please don't forget uh, to hit subscribe and leave us a review. It really help the podcast uh, it, with the algorithms and all the stuff that happens behind the, the scenes. All the technological magic. Exactly. The things that we don't quite understand, but we know it happens. Sure. Uh, sure. And so with that, we will see you guys again next week.